Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Current pharmacologic guidelines strongly recommend that veterans with PTSD be offered a therapeutic trial of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or serotonin or epinephrine reuptake inhibitors as first-line intervention. This study utilized national survey data to examine veteran characteristics associated with receiving such first-line pharmacotherapy, as well as how being a veteran of the recent conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq impacts receipt of pharmacotherapy for PTSD. Recent returnees from Afghanistan and Iraq were oversampled in the study to provide previously unreported data on PTSD-related pharmacotherapy outcomes for these populations. The study consisted of a national sample of 482 veteran affairs outpatients with a DSM-IV diagnosis of PTSD. Logistic regression models were developed to predict two dependent variables. Odds of initiating an SSRI or SNRI and odds of receiving an adequate therapeutic trial. Each dependent variable was regressed on a variety of sociodemographic characteristics. Of the 377 veterans prescribed a psychotropic medication, 73% received an SSRI or SNRI. Among these, 61% received an adequate therapeutic trial. Afghanistan and Iraq veterans were less likely to complete a therapeutic trial. The presence of a comorbid depression diagnosis moderated this relationship and further decreased the odds of completing a therapeutic trial. The authors point out that there may be obstacles in engaging Afghanistan and Iraq veterans with both PTSD and depression to complete recommended pharmacotherapy. Clinicians should actively involve veterans in treatment planning, furthermore, specifically informing veterans about the consequences of prematurely stopping SSRIs and SNRIs would be important. We now move on to a review of prazosin for the treatment of nightmares related to PTSD. PTSD is a severe anxiety disorder that can occur after exposure to a traumatic event involving the threat of death or serious injury. Veterans of war are particularly prone to developing PTSD. In fact, it is estimated that a third of Vietnam veterans suffer from PTSD. Currently, sertraline and paroxetine are the only antidepressants approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of PTSD. However, these agents can exacerbate some of the main symptoms that patients experience with PTSD, such as insomnia and nightmares, which are thought to be due to a conditioned response that is regulated by norepinephrine. 
It has been hypothesized that the medication prazosin, an antihypertensive that blocks alpha-1 receptors, can decrease central nervous system levels of norepinephrine, thereby reducing nightmares related to PTSD. Thus, Wargo and colleagues conducted a search of the literature to determine the effectiveness of prazosin in reducing nightmares associated with PTSD. Their search revealed 11 published and several ongoing studies. Prazosin demonstrated favorable clinical efficacy and significantly reduced nightmares associated with PTSD in all studies reviewed. Furthermore, prazosin was well tolerated, with the most common adverse events being dizziness and mild orthostatic hypotension. Prazosin is a promising agent for reducing nightmares associated with PTSD. However, the authors note that more well-designed studies need to be published before it can be recommended as a first-line treatment. Now we move on to a study of the use of ECT in patients with skull defects or metallic implants. In the United States, 1.4 million people suffer from brain injury due to various causes. Medical complications are varied and can be quite severe. Depending on the site of the injury, the manifestations can vary, and the development of mood disorders complicates what is an already difficult problem to manage. Head injury and metallic plate implantation with subsequent severe depression is a challenging clinical problem, and a high suicide risk makes effective treatment imperative. The role of medications in the treatment of mood disorders associated with brain injury is well documented. And there is also evidence favoring the use of ECT in this context. However, data are limited on the use of ECT in patients with skull defects or metallic head implants. The authors of this article review the literature on the use of ECT in patients with metallic head implants. They also present a case from their own practice of successful and safe use of ECT in a patient with a previous history of brain trauma and metallic plate implantation. The patient had severe depression and suicidal ideas with undisclosed plans. Over the course of eight bitemporal ECT treatments, the patient showed considerable improvements. The use of ECT in patients who have had head injury with severe depression and metallic implants is recommended when pharmacologic options have failed. The authors caution that it is important to place the electrodes away from the metallic implants until further research can confirm that the metallic components do not get heated in any way. The next article reports on the intervention of cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of depression and adherence in patients with type 1 diabetes. Depression is a common problem among individuals with type 1 diabetes. These patients often have a more difficult time following their doctor's recommendations for diabetes care and are generally less healthy. The research on treating depression or non-adherence in adults with type 1 diabetes is limited. 
Thus, the authors of this study adapted individual cognitive behavioral therapy for adherence and depression for this population. They examined the feasibility, acceptability, and potential effectiveness of this evidence-supported intervention. Nine patients with a DSM-4 diagnosis of depression, a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, and a glycosylated hemoglobin A1c level of 8.0% or greater participated in the study. Patients were referred by their diabetes care providers to a behavioral medicine specialty setting and received 10 to 12 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy. Main outcome measures included percentage of eligible participants who enrolled in the study, session attendance, independently rated Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale score, self-reported adherence to diabetes care activities, and adherence to self-monitoring of blood glucose levels. There was a clinically meaningful decrease in depression severity, demonstrated improvements in diabetes self-care, and possible improvement in glycemic control among the patients in this study. These findings suggest that mental health, adherence, and blood sugar control in these patients could improve with a cognitive behavioral intervention. Further investigation in a large-scale randomized control trial is warranted. Next, do rates of sexual dysfunction vary according to the assessment questionnaire used? Studies have shown that 25% to 60% of patients with schizophrenia who are treated with antipsychotics report sexual dysfunction. Major problems in assessment of sexual dysfunction include the mode of assessment procedure, type of measurements used, and gender differences. Most studies have assessed the prevalence of sexual dysfunction using only one rating scale. This study aimed to assess the rate and type of sexual dysfunction in male subjects receiving trifluoropyrazine, risperidone, or olanzapine using the Arizona Sexual Experience Scale, the Psychotropic Related Sexual Dysfunction Questionnaire, and the Sexual Function Section of the Modified UKU Side Effect Rating Scale. The study included 100 subjects with psychotic disorders who were receiving trifluoropyrazine, risperidone, or olanzapine for at least three months' duration. Patients with a history of sexual dysfunction prior to antipsychotic intake or chronic medical illness were excluded. The authors found that the rate of sexual dysfunction varied from scale to scale. Across all rating scales, sexual dysfunction was highest in the risperidone group, followed by the trifluoropyrazine group and least in the olanzapine group. The authors conclude that sexual dysfunction is prevalent in patients who take antipsychotics, but there is a need for a comprehensive instrument to reliably assess sexual dysfunction in patients who receive antipsychotic treatment. Our next article looks at the clinical utility of a cognitive measure for adult patients with self-ratings that fall in the range of probable ADHD. 
Patients with probable ADHD represent a particular challenge for clinicians who must differentiate between those with ADHD and those with mild psychiatric disorders without ADHD. In this retrospective study, the authors used a quick test of cognitive speed to compare processing speed and efficiency measures in adults with ADHD, in adults without ADHD, and in a healthy control group. The test was administered to 104 adults referred for evaluation of possible ADHD. Patients with and without ADHD, as well as control subjects, used similar amounts of time for color and form naming. Patients with ADHD spent more time completing dual-dimension color form naming than did patients without ADHD and controls. Overhead measures of processing efficiency indicated impaired processing efficiency and cognitive control among patients with ADHD. Compared to normative data, cognitive speed with ADHD was in the slower-than-normal range, and efficiency was in the atypical pathological range. This finding indicates that cognitive demands on executive functions reduced processing speed and efficiency. The sensitivity for ADHD diagnoses was 89% using FAIL criteria for color form naming or overhead measures of processing efficiency. The authors conclude that, within the limitations of this study, the findings suggest that a quick test of cognitive speed color form naming may be used to complement standard psychiatric intake procedures. Now we move on to a study of vitamin D deficiency among psychiatric inpatients. Previous studies in Northern Europe and Australia have suggested that vitamin D deficiency is common in psychiatric patients. In this study, the authors sought to determine the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency among psychiatric inpatients in a large North American city. They also wanted to see whether vitamin D deficiency was correlated to any of their patients' clinical characteristics. The authors measured serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels in 107 consecutive admissions to an adult psychiatric inpatient service in New York City. This study took place between September and early December 2010. According to convention, vitamin D deficiency was defined as a serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D level of 20 nanograms per milliliter or less. 54% of the patients were deficient in vitamin D. There was a significant correlation between age and vitamin D level. 72% of patients from age 18 to 34 years were deficient in vitamin D. This rate was significantly higher than the rate of deficiency in older patients. No significant relationships between vitamin D level and other clinical characteristics such as gender, race, ethnicity, glycosylated hemoglobin A1c level, body mass index, and major psychiatric diagnostic categories were found. In this study, a high percentage of psychiatric inpatients were found to be deficient in vitamin D. 
Younger patients were more at risk for deficiency. The authors suggest that screening for vitamin D deficiency should be part of the health assessment of patients with major psychiatric illnesses. The provision of excellent patient care is the goal that physicians would like to achieve in caring for all patients all of the time. Until recently, clinical excellence has not been defined, and the extent to which this recently published definition applies to the care of patients with psychiatric illness is not known. With increasing interest in the patient-centered medical home model of primary care and with the advent of accountable care organizations, an understanding of the qualities desirable in clinical psychiatrists involved either as consultants or in collaborative models is now especially relevant for addressing mental health effectively in primary care settings. This article highlights the efforts of the members of the Miller-Colson Academy of Clinical Excellence at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland, who were tasked with defining clinical excellence in academia. They arrived at a definition that includes achieving a level of mastery in the areas of communication and interpersonal skills, professionalism and humanism, diagnostic acumen, skillful negotiation of the healthcare system, knowledge and scholarly approach to clinical practice, as well as exhibiting a passion for patient care, explicitly modeling mastery to medical trainees, and collaborating with investigators to advance science and discovery. The authors conducted a search of the literature combining the key words psychiatry or psychiatrist and clinical excellence, limiting the output to case reports. In subsequent searches, the term clinical excellence was replaced by each of the components of the definition. The search yielded 218 case reports. All of the case reports were reviewed, and a consensus was reached on the eight exemplars and one teaching model to be presented in the article. Careful consideration was given as to whether any aspects of the framework for clinical excellence were missing or not applicable for psychiatry. Every case report reviewed touched on one or more of the domains of clinical excellence. None of the case reports uncovered new aspects of clinical excellence that were not described in the existing definition. As the authors point out, clinical excellence comprises several domains, all of which are applicable and relevant to psychiatric patient care. Mastery of these domains enables clinicians to provide the best possible care for all patients, including those with psychiatric illness. Excellent patient care can be fostered in the academic medical setting by recognizing those clinicians who exemplify clinical excellence. Now we invite you to engage in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of an 82-year-old woman who was experiencing progressive cognitive decline with significantly worsening short-term memory that is further complicated by depression, anxiety, 
somnolence, and gait disturbance with multiple falls. She also has polypharmacy with several medications that can negatively affect cognition. Does this patient have dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or an underlying psychiatric disorder? What should her treatment plan entail? Answer these and other questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this exciting offering by visiting us online at primarycarecompanion.com. In the case presentation from this issue's psychotherapy casebook, read the case of a 60-year-old man who spent a year in the hospital and then on a nursing home unit after suffering a severe abdominal insult. By the strength of his will, the patient summoned the motivation to rehabilitate himself and to reach the point of discharge from the nursing home unit. Leaving the nursing home unit, however, the patient could not know what lay ahead. On our website, read how a psychotherapeutic intervention helped this patient navigate the world he found outside the confines of a nursing home and persevere through difficult personal and relationship changes to establish a new beginning. This month, we feature the case of a 28-year-old man who presented to the emergency department with confusion and an altered level of consciousness after recreational ingestion of bath salts. As the authors point out, delirium and a reversible brief psychotic episode can be induced by easily available bath salts, which are undetected on routine urine or blood drug screen. Don't miss this informative report of an ongoing public health issue. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings and our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including a variety of letters, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. This is John Sheldon signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.